Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel is going to join us today to discuss two things. First, her efforts to secure the elections that will take place next Tuesday, and then her own campaign for re-election. And then we're going to talk about the dizzying amount of money that has been spent this election cycle by candidates and especially by third-party interests. Simon Schuster of MLive has been tracking it and will join to discuss. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about all kinds of issues in the run-up to the 2022 midterm elections next Tuesday, but I got to be honest, there's one issue that I wish we didn't have to discuss, and that's the efforts to interfere with or suppress people's right to vote. Democracy doesn't mean much at all if your right to vote isn't respected, if it isn't protected, if it isn't enforced, especially on Election Day. And sadly, there are dedicated interests these days that believe they can win elections or maintain power by making sure that other people's votes don't count. It's not just about getting your side to the polls, getting your votes tallied. It has also become about making sure that the other side doesn't get all of the support that they might have coming to them. Trying to disqualify people from voting, trying to disqualify ballots after they have been cast. Now, we've got a lot of people in the state whose job it is to make sure that doesn't happen to make sure that those who are eligible and registered to vote can cast those votes without interference or suppression. And at the top of that chain of authority is the Attorney General's office. It has a budget of about $108 million, and it represents the state in court and in legal disputes. Uh, This office protects consumers, public safety, victims' rights, takes on civil suits, and addresses illegal businesses uh, when they are operating in our state. But they also have to oversee uh, election enforcement. And for the past four years, the person in that role has been Dana Nessel, a Democrat who won in 2018. She faces re-election on Tuesday as well, but she's also really focused on the idea of making sure that the election is secure, making sure that there isn't interference with people's rights to vote next Tuesday. Dana is in a pretty tight race against her Republican opponent, Matt DiPerno, who is the target of a federal investigation to see if he participated in a vote tabulator tampering scheme. Nonetheless, again, the race is very close, and uh, we will all be up pretty late, I think, on Tuesday, waiting for the returns to come in. We have invited uh, Attorney General Nessel onto the program today to talk first about her efforts to make sure that the election is secure, but then also tell us why she is seeking re-election and why she believes voters should return her to another four-year term. Dana Nessel, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. So uh, I want to start with uh, these these interferences, these efforts at suppression uh, that are taking place, not just in our state, uh, but but all over uh, the country. Uh, talk about what your office does to try to protect the vote, no matter who people are pulling the lever for. Uh, and talk about how we can recognize the things that rise to the level of election interference or suppression on Election Day. 
Right. Well, where to begin on that subject right now? Um, you know, so firstly, you know, it is my job as attorney general to ensure that all the legal processes are followed uh, when it comes to elections to make sure that people are, are able to cast their ballot um, free from fear of threat or intimidation or harassment. Um, it's my job to make sure that if there is misinformation or disinformation that is out there illegally, that we take quick action. And uh, an example that I'll give you is uh, a 2020 case that we brought involving illegal robocalls that were being made into the city of Detroit by um, political operatives to provide false information to people about the process of absentee voting. And we took action, we, you know, investigated and we arrested those people. And now they're charged actually in the Wayne County Circuit Court for their actions on that. But in addition, it has to do with making sure that people are, are voting safely. And when they do, that their vote counts. Uh, to make sure that the election is, is properly certified. And when I say that, um, defending the will of the voters, ultimately. And that's what we had to do in 2020, as, as probably most of your listeners know, there were a slew of lawsuits um, in an effort to decertify the legitimate results of an election where one person um, received 154,000 more votes than the other person who was running for president in our state. And we had lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit from the likes of, you know, Sidney Powell, uh, from the likes of uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, who, who sued us in the United States Supreme Court. Even my opponent, um, Matthew DiPerno, who filed a, a lawsuit in Antrim County, uh, to try to decertify the results of the 2020 election. That case, by the way, remains pending. So mm-hmm. my opponent for attorney general is still trying to decertify the results of an election that happened now two years ago. Um, so there's there's a lot to it, but it's really just making certain that, you know, all eligible voters have the ability to cast their ballot, to do it safely, and to make sure their vote counts. And it's not my job to pick winners or losers. I don't get to decide who wins an election. I just have to make sure that the will of the people is uphold whoever they choose. And that's what I did in 2020, and that's what I'm going to do again this election. How concerned are you about uh, what we might see on Tuesday? I mean, as you point out, two years ago, there was a lot of back and forth about uh, election legitimacy, lots of efforts to as you point out, delegitimize ballots that were cast. Do you think we're going to see repeats of that kind of of effort this time? And if so, how will we handle them differently, I guess, than than we did two years ago? Or are we in for just more of the same, this this uh, extended wrangling over over the results of the election? Well, we've already seen an effort by um, the Republican Party and members of the Republican Party uh, to try to sow the seeds of, of disinformation and to file, in many cases, frivolous lawsuits to confuse people and to um, put people in a position where they believe either that their vote is not going to count or that there are shenanigans uh, involving the election so that you can't trust the system. Now, those things aren't true, right? Uh, firstly, we're going to make sure that everybody's vote does count. Um, but secondly, you know, these election procedures are being properly followed. Uh, and so we have, of course, a case that's being heard as we speak right now um, that was brought by Christina Caramo, who, of course, is the nominee, the Republican nominee, to be our chief elections officer, to be Secretary of State in Mm -hmm. Michigan, Mm -hmm. who brought a series of what I would say completely frivolous, vexatious, meritless claims that are nonetheless being heard right now before uh, uh, Chief Judge Timothy Kenney in the Wayne County Circuit Court. But essentially what she is trying to do is to ensure that no voters in the city of Detroit who have cast their ballots absentee will have their ballots count. Now, that's not going to happen. That is, there's, I, I can say with 100% certainty that she will fail in this effort, but I think that the larger picture is she wants people to hear about this lawsuit and people to think, well, what's the point in me 
even voting if my vote isn't going to count. Um, and, you know, similar efforts have been made by the Michigan Republican Party. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate because I think it's all about voter suppression and it's all about people not trusting the system or thinking that their vote isn't going to count. And I guess what I'm here to tell people is, yes, these lawsuits have been filed. They're going to continue to be filed. I think we'll see these lawsuits filed all the way up through Election Day and then after Election Day. But just the same way they were not successful last time, they're not going to be successful this time. And so people should have every confidence that they'll be able to vote and that their vote is going to count. Yeah. Okay, I know that uh, you don't have a ton of time to be with us today, but but I do want to spend some time talking about uh, your reelection campaign. Uh, let's start with what you would say were your successes during the first four years uh, that that you've been office, and then uh, we'll talk about some things that uh, maybe didn't go as you uh, as you might have wanted them to go. Well, since we're talking about elections, I mean, I successfully defended the legitimate results of the 2020 election here in Michigan, which was under assault. And what we knew is that if I didn't win all of these cases, that the dominoes were going to fall. I mean, Michigan was just the first uh, of several swing states that the uh, Republicans had targeted. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of my work in regard to um, upholding the will of the people in that election. But, you know, we've had so many other successes in many other areas. I mean, brought in over $820 million to the state of Michigan by suing drug manufacturers and distributors uh, that's going to be used to treat people who um, have addictions to opioids. Uh, we saved ratepayers in the state over two billion dollars in increases on their utilities. Our our rates are still too high, but they would be much higher had it not been the work that our office did. Um, I argued a case myself personally before the Michigan Supreme Court uh, on March 2nd that at long last now has allowed for LGBTQ people to be protected under our civil rights law so that, you know, gay people, trans people can't be fired from their jobs um, just based on who they are. Uh, our elder abuse task force. I mean, we made huge strides in protecting seniors who were subjected to abuse and neglect and, and exploitation economically. It's very hard now for a senior citizen to lose the money they have, their life savings in their bank account, based on making a mistake because they get a text message or a robocall thinking that it's somebody who needs their information, uh, a utility or, or the IRS or something, and they accidentally give them information that they shouldn't have. And the same goes for our protection for for workers. We have made great strides also when it comes to hate crimes and domestic terrorism. You know, we've gone after white supremacy groups that had plans of mass carnage in our churches and and our synagogues at our grocery stores. Instead, we have a lot of people that are sitting in in prison uh, instead of having committed um, terrible acts of violence. I mean, really, the list goes on and on, but I think I've done so much to protect everyday people all around the state of Michigan uh, in a way that, frankly, no AG had for many, many years. And my hope is to continue to be able to do that. Mm. Uh, Let's talk about some of the things that uh, didn't go the way that you probably planned over the last four years. Let's start with the the Flint water crisis, uh, where, where we are essentially, I think, I think it's fair to say at a point where uh, the criminal investigation into what happened there is uh, is is pretty stalled out. Uh, uh, talk about what happened there. Well, let's talk about the fact that um, my assignment on that was to settle the civil cases. I could only handle either the civil or the criminal cases. I could not do both um, ethically because in one case you were defending state actors who were accused of wrongdoing and the other prosecuting them. So I had to pick one side and build a conflict wall and appoint other people to handle the other side. I picked the civil side. And we got those civil cases settled in fairly short order. It was the largest settlement in the history of the state of Michigan for the residents of the city of Flint. And I had to get it through a Republican legislature who had to approve of it to appropriate those funds. Mm -hmm. So I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to get that done um, to help people who had suffered greatly at the hands of their state government under the Snyder administration. That being the case, I appointed um, Solicitor General Fadwa Hamoud, as well as Wayne County Prosecutor uh, Kim Worthy, to handle the criminal cases. And they did what any prosecutor would did do in that time period. 
with what they had, which was to go before a uh, a grand jury, a one-man grand jury, so that they could get those cases handled as expeditiously as possible. Um, obviously, no way of knowing that for the first time in Michigan history, after decades and decades of prosecutors around the state using the one-man grand jury, for the Supreme Court now to say, well, indictments that were issued through the one-man grand jury are invalid mm-hmm. and that they have to go through a preliminary exam. I mean, this was a system that was good enough for many, many years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases, but apparently not when it concerns uh, the former governor and, um, you know, his cohorts. Is there is there so any hope for they, is there any hope for criminal prosecutions at this point in, in the Flint water crisis? Well, I know that uh, the criminal team has um, has appealed um, some recent decisions, but I will say this. There were a number of manslaughter charges that were filed. Mm-hmm. Those are still within the statute of limitations. There's a 10-year statute of limitations, remembering that these events occurred in 2014 uh, and 2015. So for, the, for those that were charged with manslaughter, absolutely they can still be charged. For other offenses that have a six-year statute of limitations, I know those are being fought in court right now, but let me say this. You know, as attorneys, we can bring the very best cases that we possibly can, and we can make the very best arguments that we possibly can with the best evidence. But the judge, the courts don't always rule in our favor. And, you know, you show me me an attorney that's never lost a case, and I'll show you an attorney that's never brought a meaningful case before in their life. And I know that, you know, Kim Worthy and Fadwa Hamoud have worked diligently on behalf of the residents of the city of Flint to do everything they possibly could to make sure that their interests were properly represented and that they're going to continue to do that. Um, But, you know, for people who question uh, their methodology, kind of hard when Kim Worthy has brought God knows how many hundreds of cases using a grand jury system before uh, and never had any issues to think that that would happen all of a sudden out of nowhere now. Um, pretty hard to predict, I would say, if you were her. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, again, I know you, you don't have uh, a lot of time, but I do want to ask you about one more thing. Um, the, these commercials that I see where uh, they're, they're rerunning uh, over and over you saying a drag queen in every classroom uh, trying to to get at you and, and get at Governor Whitmer. Um, now, look, I, I know your sense of humor and guile and I appreciate it, uh, but I, I wonder if you regret quipping that way, given the way that that has been turned back around again, not just on you. Uh, but also on Governor Whitmer, who didn't have anything to do with that uh, uh, when, when you when you said it. Um, are you sometimes too flip? Well, let me say this. I think the thing that's so ridiculous about all of that is that there was a joke that I made, not an actual policy statement, in regard right. to what was most harming our children in their schools. And the fact is I have been, you know, pretty um, – uh, very clear about my view on the fact that we have a proliferation of guns in our society. I am running against a guy that that believes that there should be no limitation of any kind on the the kinds of guns, the amount of guns, who can have a gun, uh, where they can possess a weapon. We know that that is a threat to school children, but for them to say, oh, drag queens are a threat to school children, it's the biggest threat that children are facing in our schools, was ridiculous. And I made a joke about it, obviously not really intending that that was going to be a policy statement, but that's all the Republicans have, right? They don't have good policies, so they have to take a snippet of a joke you make and turn it into something more than it is. But let's be clear about who I'm running against. I'm running against a guy who is best known for bringing these illegitimate lawsuits uh, to try to overturn democracy in our state and, and also nationally. You know, he's a guy who was fired from law firms for padding, you know, his bills. He's got multiple complaints that are pending for the Attorney Grievance Commission, allegations of assaulting his elderly elderly clients and, and stealing from them, and his extreme positions. I mean, he opposes not just abortion even to save the life of a woman, but he opposes birth control. He wants that to be illegal. Uh, you know, he's a person who, instead of 
fighting domestic terrorism the way that I have, he supports domestic terrorists. He would dismiss the pending cases against the Wolverine Watchmen who lent material support to try to, you know, yeah. I mean, kidnap we're, we're t- and, and uh, you know, and, and assassinate the governor. He he supports that, whereas, of course, I prosecuted. I mean, he's such an extreme individual. Right. I, I guess my question, though, is, is again, do you, do you think sometimes, and again, I, I know your sense of humor and I appreciate it, but do you think you fear, by, by saying what you did and the way you did it, are you feeding into this, this machine, I guess, that, that takes things out of context and, um, and, and inappropriately casts things as, as being serious when they aren't, uh, and that it could you know, do damage to, to your efforts at re-election or, or at the governor's? I think the thing ultimately, you know, listen, I, I respect your work as a journalist, Stephen, but I have to say this. I never get asked about the fact that I saved the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, sure. for 3 million Michiganders in Michigan. That's 3 million people who have health insurance now that could have very well lost it. Yeah. Many of those would have certainly Super lost important. it. Super yeah. important, had I not, had I not taken that case to the United States Supreme Court, I never get asked about that, but I get asked every day about the quip I made um, joking about drag queens. And that's a problem because the actual work I've done at that office has improved the lives of millions and millions of, our, of residents in our state. But I rarely get asked about that. But boy, I sure get asked about that drag queen remark every <laughs> well, we did, solitary day. We, we did talk about your work a bit too, but uh, but I hear what you're saying. Yes, uh, there there are more important things. I just I just wondered if if uh, maybe you were thinking a little harder about uh, uh, again the way that your sense of humor uh, can be can be misused. Uh, anyway, <laughs> well, Stephen, I mean, but you know what? I mean, I guess you know it, it's funny, but I think that as as you know as politicians, as elected leaders, and especially as women, you know, we really can't win. If we're too serious all the time, then we're robots. Hmm. If we make, you know, if we try to use humor uh, to make a point, you know, then, you know, then that's used against us as well. I think what people should look at is, first of all, how dangerous my opponent is. And he is truly a dangerous person who would try to subvert democracy in our state. How do we know that? Because he's already done it. He's doing it right now. Hmm. Um, but, but not just that, but, you know, I've done a lot of really important things in office and all you have to do is just Google me and you will find story after story after story of things that I've done to assist people in the state of Michigan. But what you see is that here, even though I've brought the most successful, you know, prosecutions on, you know, major sexual assault investigations in the history of the state, including our clergy abuse investigations, I'm running against a guy who has not even indicated that he would continue my major sexual assault investigations. Um, but you never hear about that. You don't, you don't, that's not a, a talking point that you hear in any interview. But boy, you sure do hear about my one joke about drag queens. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. All right. Well, fair, fair enough. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I hear you. We did talk about your work, though, and I did that first. But, uh, but I, I, I absolutely respect what you're saying here. Uh, I, I also really respect that you, you came on to talk with us and uh, spent more time than I think you had planned to. So uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, uh, thank you again for, uh, for coming on to Detroit today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Much appreciated. Yep. Okay. Uh, just a note: uh, we have. Reached out to uh, Dana Nestle's Republican opponent, Matt Perno, uh, to see if he would come on to Detroit today to discuss his candidacy as well. He has not yet accepted that invitation. Of course, there are two more shows before the election, Friday and Monday, and we would love to have him here. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking about Michigan politics, but we're going to pivot a little to talk about all the money that is being spent during campaign season. Senior politics reporter from MLive, Simon Schuster, is going to join us. He has been following this really closely. We'll also get you going on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, 
WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Money dictates so much of our lives, and it's definitely a big influence in campaigns and in politics. Much of this comes down to campaign funding and spending, which has really ramped up over the last decade, and it's having a huge impact on this election cycle. We are seeing uh, a huge amount of spending on the governor's race and in the 8th Congressional District race. Uh, We are seeing more money in some of uh, the campaigns than we have ever seen before. And it's not just money from candidates themselves or from the two political parties, the two major political parties. There are all of these third-party interests that raise huge sums of money and spend them mostly on negative campaign ads uh, that add to the total. It's enough to make you think and wonder about the influence of money on our politics. Is it too much? Is it too unregulated? Is it not transparent enough? And what effect does it have on the decisions that people make on their ballots? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And we've got uh, Simon Schuster, who is a senior politics reporter for M Live, here to talk about it. He has been tracking all of the money that is sloshing around in Michigan campaigns this cycle. Uh, Simon, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me on, Stephen. So let's start with the gubernatorial race. Uh, Governor Whitmer has raised a lot more than her opponent, Tudor Dixon, but in the last month, uh, Dixon has kind of caught up. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that that's uh, pretty uh, on track with what we've seen from recent campaign finance filings. It's important to note that like, we don't see, essentially from uh, a couple weeks after the primary until 10 days or so before the election, any sort of campaign finance information. So we just kind of got a lot of this stuff uh, last Friday. And uh, as a result, you know, we're sort of looking at this now at the tail end of the campaign, but she's really kept pace with Gretchen Whitmer. I think the big problem for her now is that uh, although she's sort of kept pace with her fundraising now, as we're looking in the final chapter of the campaign, uh, she only just has gotten this money to spend, whereas Governor Whitmer has been advertising. I'm sure any of your listeners who have been uh, watching TV or cable news in the past uh, you know, few months have been seeing this steady stream of ads uh, from Governor Whitmer and her allies. But uh, Tudor Dixon, sort of the, the cavalry has really only come in for her in the last hours here. And and that race, uh, when we think about uh, the totals in, in that race, again, the totals in the campaigns overall, I think, are, are, are stretching toward records. But, but let's talk about that governor's race and how much money is in it. Uh, is, this, is this something we haven't really seen before? You know, I don't know if we're going to get to the record amount of spending that we saw in the 2018 election, in fact. And that's largely because the while Governor Whitmer has had such an unprecedented amount of fundraising, fundraising, I believe, about uh, $36 million since entering office in 2019, um, Dixon hasn't really sort of had the institutional support. I think it's important to remember that Bill Schuette was attorney general. He was an incumbent politician, whereas uh, 18 months ago, uh, Tudor Dixon was a commentator on sort of a fringe cable network, Real America's Voice. Mm -hmm. And so she didn't have sort of this professional political apparatus built up. She didn't have fundraising consultants that like uh, Governor Whitmer and a lot of uh, institutional politicians do. And so there has been sort of this lag for her in fundraising. And so although Governor Whitmer has had this outsized fundraising uh, uh, acumen, we've not seen the same thing on the Republican side. Yeah. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the other huge race where money is uh, having a big influence, and that's the 8th Congressional District, where incumbent Democrat Alyssa Slotkin is facing off against Republican Tom Barrett, who is right now in the legislature. That is going to end up being one of the most uh, expensive congressional races. Talk about why that race has attracted so much money and 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 interest uh, when we have other races that uh, will also be close. Dan Kildy, for instance, uh, in um, in the new district that he's running in, also um, will you know is is in a tight race. Uh, what is it about this uh, this this Slotkin Barrett race that is uh, so interesting to fund to the to the fundraisers? 
Right. So uh, while uh, Alyssa Slotkin is the incumbent in the current 8th district, she's actually running in the, in the new 7th. That's right. And uh, Kildy is running in, in, in the new 8th. See, it's I, hard to keep I'm, all that's these right. lined I, up. It's going to take me a couple of years to, to sort out the new numbers on these districts. That's right. That's right. And we won't now. even get started on state legislative districts <laughs> in that regard. That's right. But um, – yeah, I mean, it's important to note that the 7th District between Alyssa Slotkin and Tom Barrett is not only the most expensive election in Michigan, uh, it's one of the most expensive congressional races nationally. It's certainly the most expensive uh, U.S. House race in Michigan's history. We've already seen something in the range of uh, well above $30 million spent on advertising in this race. And uh, Alyssa Slotkin has proven to be a prodigious fundraiser. She certainly has an advantage on uh, Tom Barrett, but at the same time, you know, they're relatively matched uh, in advertising spending. And that's in large part because uh, a lot of these uh, significant advertising spenders are outside forces. These are uh, the House Majority PAC, uh, DTRIP, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and its counterpart on the Republican side that are pouring money into these races. Uh, they're spending you know, inordinate amounts of cash. And beyond just sort of the, uh, you can see the national interest in this race and how important it is to people because you see these national figures, some of them whom are, are mulling presidential bids like Republican and former Vice President Mike Pence is coming to campaign for Tom Barrett on Friday. And then we saw Liz Cheney sort of uh, making for strange bedfellows uh, campaigning for um, Alyssa Slacken earlier this week. Uh, and so you, it really sort of shows this magnetic force that this uh, race has brought. Uh, it has national significance. And that's really where we're at, I think, with campaign uh, spending in this state is that it's less about in these congressional races uh, its significance for Michiganders and much more so about control of Congress and the balance of power in Washington. Yeah. I mean, if you put those two districts together, for instance, uh, the 8th, the 7th and the new 8th, uh, they're critical to who will control Congress in, in Washington. If Republicans win both of those, uh, it makes it much harder for the Democrats to, to retain uh, control. Uh, we're, we're talking with uh, Simon Schuster, who is a senior politics reporter for M Live, also former director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. We're talking about all the money that is flooding into campaigns and uh, into candidacies. As we get closer to November 8th and Election Day, I want to hear from you as well. What do you make of our campaign finance system here, which allows all of this money to be part of the process? Do you think we should have maybe a different way of dealing with all the money in politics? Should it be more transparent? Should we be able to know more about, especially these third-party groups, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that are raising money and spending on behalf of candidates or issues? Uh, do you think there is just too much money sloshing around in our elections? And do you think that is uh, a, a tool of unfairness, an influence of unfairness in uh, in the process? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can uh, include you in the conversation that way. Simon, before we get to our listeners, I do want to talk about this third-party influence, uh, which we were talking about the other day here uh, on the program when we were talking about uh, ads and, and, and commercials. Um, the, the, the number of groups that are interested in these races and the amount of money that they have is one of the things that's pushing uh, these totals uh, so high. Talk about these third-party groups and what role they're playing in this particular election. Right. So when you look at the federal level, a lot of these outside spenders are people with you know, particular interests, whether it be uh, the environment, uh, Second Amendment rights, or uh, you know, any of these sort of hot-button topics where control of Congress is really important to them. They come in and spend a significant amount of money. But one that I think is particularly important to point out in our state legislative races is that in the 2020 cycle, the largest source of dark money spending in our state legislative races was the parties themselves. They have... Uh, administrative accounts, which are supposed to be for, you know, buying staplers and paper and paying office rent, these sorts of things. Uh, they can use these funds outside of the campaign finance system, accept corporate checks, unlimited contributions, and then turn around and run what we call issue ads, where they don't explicitly advocate for the candidate's election, but they either talk up how good the candidate is or predominantly attack their opponents, often using, you know, sort of less than savory messaging. And 
So these are particularly effective because of their unlimited amount of money that they can spend and raise. Um, similarly, I think the caucus packs are really relevant in state uh, uh, legislative races because they sort of can spend unlimited amounts in the general election, though those uh, donations are disclosed. But we're seeing sort of a centralization of political power here. It becomes less about local politics and more about national agendas and nationalization of our politics. And I think that it's you know a pertinent question for, for voters and listeners on this program program uh, that, you know, what effects does this have for our democracy? Does it become about these elected officials representing local interests or does it become, you know, the the role that these officials can have sort of in advancing more nationalized agendas? And I think that that does uh, particularly uh, really complex things to our democracy that may perhaps be troubling. Yeah. Uh, the transparency there is also problematic. Uh, I see the names of these third-party groups, at the end of their ads, they often tell me absolutely nothing about who it is or what their agenda might be. I mean, they have uh, very cryptic names, some of them. But but beyond that, we, we don't really get to know uh, who is behind these these uh, these interests and who's who's funding them. I mean, the transparency level for this stuff, especially at this point, um, is pretty low. Right. I mean, we have a, a political apparatus now that's so professionalized that sort of the business of erecting these financial vehicles and establishing them and making sure that they're opaque, that you don't know who's behind them, is really sort of streamlined. It can happen very quickly, often in short order before an election. The primary super PAC that is supporting Tudor Dixon, Michigan Families United, as I reported earlier in the cycle, although they've received a lot of money from uh, moneyed uh, sort of Republican interests, including the DeVos family, uh, they've outspent her campaign. But we still don't know who created this super PAC and what sort of the motivation by it is. They invite invited Tudor Dixon to a policy forum. Uh, they filmed her speaking, her stump speech, and then used that to run ads. But the campaign and people who were even emceeing that event professed to know nothing about who's actually organizing the super PAC. Another issue here is disclosure. When you look at these dark money vehicles, these nonprofit organizations that fund uh, these um, dark money organizations, when they first create themselves, if they create them, if they establish in an election year, that means that we won't see their first tax return or Form 990, their financial disclosure, until generally November of the year after the election. And so uh, voters have moved on. They lose interest in who's behind these dark money groups. And so so any sort of pressure towards transparency fades away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. OK, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to continue talking with Simon Schuster about all the money in uh, our elections as we get closer to Election Day next Tuesday. We'll get to you on the phones and on social. Next, we're going to talk a little more about uh, some problems that have arisen in the, the campaigns this this fall and uh, a story by Simon this morning about a challenge to Republican nominee Tudor Dixon for governor um, and what that's about with money. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about all the money and all the ads that we are seeing in advance of next Tuesday. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Simon Schuster. He is a senior politics reporter for MLive, formerly the director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. We're talking about all the money that is being spent in the campaigns uh, in the run-up to next Tuesday's elections. Uh, uh, how much do we know about the money that's being spent and the people who are spending it? Is it too much? Is it having an outsized influence on our politics, uh, and are there things we can do to either uh, 
get more of that money uh, to be transparent? Uh, are, are there better ways for us to keep track of the ways in which this influences it? Uh, we want to get uh, you guys going on the phones and on uh, Twitter as well. Call and tell us what you make of our campaign finance system, what you make of all the money that is in our campaigns uh, this fall. Uh, what changes would you make as well if uh, if you had the the ability? 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work into the conversation. Big Neo on Twitter says, the current money in politics allows seats to be purchased in Congress and other areas. It is extremely important for the voters to educate themselves on the positions that uh, the candidates take. Uh, Anka uh, called uh, actually uh, w- with reference to our former conversation with uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel. She says she called to say how much of a positive impact she feels that this administration, Governor Whitmer and General Nessel, have had on her life. She said they run professional operations, which she has seen Personally, she said they advocate for trans people, which is very important for things like insurance mandates, allowing trans women to obtain homes and not or home hormones and not be uh, discriminated uh, against. Uh, thanks to both uh, Big Neo and Anka for uh, those comments. Let's go to the phones here. Arthur in Detroit, you're up first. Arthur, what's on your mind? Are you there, Arthur? Oh, it's Hunter, actually. Oh, Hunter. I'm sorry. Uh, go I've ahead. I've called him before. Yeah, go um, ahead. Oh, uh, there's so much to say here. Um, well, there's a few things about it that are tragic. One is that so much of the ads, the TV ads, are, are just, especially from the right wing, are just lies, which with, with no defamation suit you can file for them. And the other is that it, some, that money could be going to something else. It's all it's all going into a, uh, a you know, a few hands of the people who produce the commercials and the and the TV shows and the TV. Uh, stations that run them, mm-hmm. but there are millions of dollars going to this select few. And um, I mean, the solution for it is that at least make sure that uh, well, one solution will be try to amend the constitution so that uh, the the rights that of like free speech rights only apply to natural persons, not to corporations, and make sure that there's full disclosure that if you if you contribute a bunch of money to a pack or whatever. Your name, because you're the person speaking, has to be um, known to the public so that they know who the liars are. Yeah. Uh, Hunter, that's a really interesting uh, set of ideas. Uh, Simon, the the lies and other outlandish statements that are being made in these ads stand out to me this cycle as, as having gotten a lot worse uh, than just two years ago. Uh, when when we had the presidential election, I mean, the, some of the things that people are saying, the characterizations they're making of uh, the candidates uh, are, are, are stretching the bounds of, uh, I think, uh, uh, a factual, um, you know, a factual basis, and and maybe across the line when you think about things like defamation or or or, or libel. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think that it's important to sort of. Uh, Note that money in politics has become something of an arms race, right? Because uh, Tudor Dixon, for example, uh, didn't has had an uh, an unprecedented lack of money. She was uh, silent on the airwaves from her own campaign until uh, you know the past few weeks, which really has not happened in a gubernatorial election in decades. And this is important to note because if you are not spending an inordinate amount of money, then there are allies on the airwaves uh, for your opponent then that can run uh, you know, a, a total flotilla of negative ads that instead define you for people who otherwise may not know who you are. Uh, and so whether or not that's false or misrepresenting who you actually are as a person or maybe accentuating your most uh, controversial policy opinion, uh, it becomes extremely difficult to then have to later on reintroduce yourself to the public and say, this is what I'm about, not this one bad thing. If you look at uh, a, a super PAC who spent, you know, I believe in excess of $20 million, I think about 28 in favor of, of Governor Whitmer, they have highlighted her stance on abortion. Now, Tudor Dixon wants to argue that this is not an issue that's relevant at all 
uh, in the gubernatorial election, given the existence of Prop 3. But, you know, whether that's the case or not, this is the thing that a lot of voters are going to associate her with because of the amount of money that's spent. So if you are, you know, trying to be above the fray and say, you know, I don't need to spend tons and tons of money on ads to win an election, then that really creates that opening for outside groups or your opponent's campaign to sort of define you for them. And that's sort of the difficulty that we find uh, in, in sort of this whole campaign finance situation. And and these third-party ads are almost universally negative, at least in my experience this cycle. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones that, that are mischaracterizing, um, you know, candidates, really really taking things out of context and, and saying things that I, in some cases, I, I know not to be true. Uh, if you are a candidate, I'm not sure how you would compete with uh, that that kind of outside money. I mean, you, the, the, almost no candidate is going to be able to to match what these third parties can can do in terms of the fundraising and and blanketing the airwaves. Certainly, and so this has been great for campaigns because that means that when they spend their money on advertising, they can introduce themselves to the public through their advertisements, talk about what they stand for, and have a really positive message. While these outside groups, you know, without any sort of necessarily coordination, but there's just sort of a mutual understanding, they can sling mud, disparage characters, and like you said, create caricatures of their opponents in ways that the campaigns no longer have to. And so it's been uh, really great for them in that regard. But of course, that means that you have to have allies that are willing to do that. Otherwise, it's up to you yourself. But I think uh, that's uh, really sort of gone to um, extremes, as you've noted in this cycle, because uh, so much money is flooding into our elections. Yeah. Uh, Simon, I also want to talk about your story this morning about the uh, Michigan Democratic Party filing a complaint against Tudor Dixon for the way that she has spent some of the money Uh, that she's raised. What's going on there? Right. So um, this filing from the Michigan Democratic Party essentially accuses uh, the uh, Tudor Dixon's campaign of spending $5,000 on designer clothes for their candidate uh, and uh, buying items. uh, And these include uh, a red Alexander McQueen dress, a a, uh, Veronica Beard double-breasted jacket, very high-end items purchased from Neiman Marcus and another boutique in Grand Rapids. And um, you know, this uh, you're not allowed to spend campaign funds on uh, items or assets that are going to personally benefit you. Um, Dixon's campaign has argued that these are for campaign purposes only, just to be worn on the trail. Um, but it, this is where things get a little bit murky because Michigan's campaign finance law is full of vagaries and you uh, and sort of uh, weird situations that we require the Department of State then to sort of issue guidance and, and rulings that say this is how you have to explicitly uh, act in these situations. And so we don't have an explicit ruling on the use of campaign clothing, but uh, at the federal level, this is explicitly barred. Um, And so this is sort of where we get into difficulties. And it's not, uh, you know, uh, it's not to say that uh, other campaigns have been squeaky clean in this regard. Um, Gretchen Whitmer's campaign had to offload $3.5 million that she raised in excess of contribution limits when these sort of uh, cursory uh, recall efforts uh, against her fizzled out. And and, uh, a group, an allied group that helped her 2018 campaign Mm -hmm. also had to pay a major fine. So, um, this is sort of what happens when you get into the minutiae of campaign finance, and it makes for uh, sort of a very poor optics, I think, on Tudor, uh, Tudor Dixon's part, for, for better or worse, because these are sort of really extravagant purchases. These are not Old Navy dresses. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, I think that probably is the point of the complaint, right? That uh, just most a certainly. few days before the election, and you know, this won't be resolved at least until after the election, you get a story out there about uh, Tudor Dixon spending Big money on on clothes, uh, but it's a, it's a it's an important story, and it's it, it, it's it's one of those things that really highlights how intricate all of the things that deal with campaign finance uh, are, how how specific the rules are. Um, all right, I want to go back to the phones here, Ali and Dearborn. Uh, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left, but go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I just have a quick comment. I, for me, I think it's. Sh- should be no finance, no uh, no contributions allowed. I think there's a direct conflict of interest when that candidate is supposed to represent their constituents, but yet they get uh, you know third party contributing uh, millions of dollars. 
that may have an opinion different from what they should be doing for the folks they represent. So that's why I feel it should it should be done. So, so you know, uh, Ali, the, the outcome you're after there, I think, makes a lot of sense. But, you know, we have a First Amendment to the Constitution, and it says that uh, I'm supposed to be able to support my favored candidates and that money is one of the ways I support that. Do you not, do you not believe that that's acceptable expression? Uh, and the way I think about it, I think uh, the answer to that is no, because we have such a big uh, you know, gap between folks who have money and folks who don't. Hmm. And it goes back to my point of conflict of interest. Now you're representing those elite people who have the opportunity to contribute those uh, big dollars, and you're not representing the boots on the ground. So that, that's why I, sh- I would, you know, I feel it's a direct conflict of interest, and, and I think it should go away. Right. 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 Uh, Ali, I really appreciate the, the call and the comments. Simon, this whole question of, uh, of you know, how we would reform this is, is about the First Amendment and the way that, uh, that we think of it. We've only got about a minute left, but I want to get you to respond. Yeah, I think that uh, campaign finance advocates now have increasingly looked to the Constitution if they want to create sort of the major paradigm shifting change that they're interested in. Uh, when you look at what Supreme Court rulings have done over the past 10 years, it's not only moved to say that, um, you know, money is speech and that you can't really regulate political speech um, to a really a significant degree, but that um, – even more recently that there have been rulings that say you can't try and chill anonymous speech, the idea that you could spend money uh, anonymously to influence, to attempt to influence elections or educate the public. And so we see a Supreme Court that's gradually trying to widen this idea of speech and uh, what can and cannot be regulated. So I think that if there's hope that uh, advocates have we're sort of t- uh, more more closely regulating the spending in our elections that they have to increasingly look to constitutional change. But I don't think, given this sort of arms race that we're in, that there's much appetite among elected officials for this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Simon Schuster, always great to have you here. Thanks for uh, coming by today. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Chien Julie Wong about her new book, Beautiful Country, and explore what it feels like to be an undocumented immigrant growing up here in America. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.